Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. Today on the pod, we're going to talk about what's at stake if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. Hint, it is nothing good. And uh, we'll talk about some surprising stats about the state state of esports right now. Hint, it is also nothing good. <laughs> then we'll talk about how Mark Zuckerberg is copying yet another tech company. Stick around to hear which one. Before finishing up with a terrifying story about killer whales rising up against humanity. Neil, it's Monday, May 22nd. Let's ride. All right, Neil, before we dive into the news, we have some news of our own. So getting feedback from you guys is a critical part of producing this podcast. Some of you like my blonde hair. Some of you don't. Some of you love hair and makeup for setting boundaries. Others think they are lazy. But the one universal piece of feedback we've heard from everyone is that the show needs to come out earlier. So we've listened and we're going to do that. We The show currently comes out at around 10 a.m. Eastern time, but starting next week, we are going to be releasing it at 7 a.m. This is big news, <laughs> not only for you guys, because you'll finally be able to listen to a morning show right. on your morning commute, but it's big news for us because now we're early morning people. We are. We're already early morning people. I think this qualifies as like super early, super morning. early morning people. Uh, we'll see. It's going to be super interesting. Um, I am excited to get a little bit more life. We get more life. <laughs> I know. Be up at like 4 a.m. I know. I'm setting my alarm for 4.45. Really? So you better believe I'm about to become one of those insufferable early morning people who make their entire personality, personality the fact that they wake up early. So sorry for that, everybody. Uh, all right. Stay tuned. Uh, Toby and I will document what it's like to get up before, <laughs> but as other people are coming back from the bar every day. There you go. Um, let's get into the news. So I'm going to borrow a bit of Gen Z slang to say things are getting for real, for real. <laughs> on this debt ceiling debacle. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen yesterday reiterated that the U.S. would likely start defaulting on its obligations on June 1st, which is next Thursday. So we'll talk about that on a 7 a.m. show. <laughs> Unless Congress raises the debt ceiling above the current level of $31.4 trillion. Are they going to get a deal done? Well, freaking hope so. But talks will continue between Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today. I want to talk about less about the political back and forth because they're just going to keep talking. And I want to focus more today on what would happen if the U.S. were to default just to highlight what's at stake. Essentially, it means that the government will not be allowed to borrow more money to pay the people that it owes, leading to massive financial instability because U.S. bonds are considered the safest investments on our entire planet. I don't think there is another safer investment. So if we can't pay our IOUs, that is just terrible news across the global economy. Now, uh, we don't know exactly what will happen if we can't pay our bills because we've never defaulted before. So we, there's absolutely no precedent. But Toby and I are just going to do a quick rundown of some possible scenarios that have been floated out by experts about what would happen if we were to default. Yeah, let's speculate. <laughs> so up first is stocks would more than likely crash. So 
remember, stock prices reflect kind of investor perception of future earning potential of a company. And if the future looks like one where the global economy is hamstrung and the U.S. can't pay its debts, then, of course, market prices are going to crash. So far, stocks really haven't moved that much, which is kind of wild because so many people expect a deal to get done. But if we look back at the last time that the so-called X date, the date where the U.S. might default, was this close, that was back in 2011 when Obama and Republicans were kind of deadlocked, indexes dropped 20% like a week out. So we probably are going to see some movement if we don't see some movement on the, on the negotiations front. Yeah. But that's the first scenario is that if we default, stocks would definitely get wiped out. And then the next one is that the U.S. would not be able to write checks to its employees like pers military personnel, air traffic controllers, safety inspectors, others in critical jobs. I should remind everyone that the U.S. federal government is the largest employer in the country uh, with 4.2 million full-time employees. So a failure to pay its workers would have just massive consequences across the economy. And then you have these social services like Social Security. Uh, there are 60 million, 66 million people who get Social Security checks, and it's unclear whether they would get their checks on time. Meanwhile, Medicare, Medicaid, and food stamps could be disrupted as well. So you just kind of get a sense of how much the federal government spends here. And if it can't spend, that's a lot of people who rely on it. Yeah. So that would be another you know, huge consequence of just people not getting paid some of many of whom rely on the federal government for their income, especially if they're older. For sure. Um, okay, the third scenario is that the U.S. dollar would drop. So right now, the U.S. dollar is kind of the de facto global reserve currency. Roughly 60 percent of not Bitcoin. <laughs> it's not Bitcoin, not yet. Roughly 60 percent of foreign currency exchanges still happen in U.S. dollars. And so if the U.S. defaults on debt, that could just absolutely tank the value of the dollar. This is a confidence thing, which is so much of the outcome from the, the debt defaulting is a confidence thing. If the global economy can't have confidence in the U.S. government to pay its bills, to work through its own debt crisis, then why would they have confidence in the U.S. dollar to remain the stable and strong reserve currency that it currently is? So that would definitely be another ripple effect is that people would lose confidence in the dollar and that would hamstr hamstring the entire global financial system. And all of our European vacations would cost a lot more. I know. And you, went to, you went to Europe at a really just good Just before the this happened, yes. All right, and then a final consequence, not certainly not final, but the one final one we're going to go over today is higher borrowing costs. So the fundamental rule of credit is that if you are seen as a riskier borrower, then your cost to borrow is higher. So if the U.S. defaults, expect interest rates to go up across the economy from credit cards to mortgages. Mortgage rates are already sky high right now at about 6.9%, but in the case of a default, they would skyrocket up to 8.4% by September, according to Zillow. So that would essentially freeze the housing market if you have a mortgage. No one's paying 8.4% on a 30-year mortgage. <sighs> I, the thing I think of is poor millennials, again, because like they still can't buy homes and like the mortgage rates are going to go up. So, again, these are all hypothetical yeah. scenarios that if we do default, but while you're seeing those headlines of the debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling, these are kind of what's at stake. Yeah. So hopefully that kind of puts it in perspective for you guys of, yeah, what is going on with all these negotiations. Um, okay, let's move on. Today, Meta woke up to a slap on the wrist from European regulators. And that slap is definitely going to leave a mark. EU regulators fined Meta $1.3 billion for illegally storing data from European users on its servers in the U.S. This is the largest privacy fine ever from the EU. 
And the find centers on the flow of data between the U.S. and Europe, which the Computer and Communications Industry Association calls the busiest internet route in the world. So if Meta can bring its data transfer practice back into client compliance with GDPR, which is General Data Protection Regulation, which is that annoying law that pops up every time you try to open a website abroad. Cookies? Do you like, want cookies? Yeah, exactly. Everyone knows that. Um, then the fine will be erased. Neil, I'm actually totally on Meta's side here because I freaking hate GDPR because it's just a ridiculous. When you went to Spain, you had what was it like? Every single website I opened, you get nine questions about cookies, and it's just in the, the interest of protecting user data, yeah. data privacy. It just becomes so annoying because like I don't want to talk about cookies every time. But yeah, this is Meta got fined. It's not looking. It's, it's not great for them, yeah. No, but it's like 1% of their annual revenue, and they're going to appeal, and this thing is going to be a lengthy process. But yes, it is the top fine ever given out under GDPR, um, and the second biggest one was Amazon was fined by Luxembourg, <laughs> which I didn't even know had the power to fine anyone. Punching above their weight, right But there. it's really, it's actually pretty interesting looking into the backstory of this, and it's all about this data-sharing agreement between the U.S. and the EU that was invalidated in 2020 because of concerns that U.S. spy agencies could snoop on on Europeans information that was stored in the US. So they are, the US and the EU are currently working on another deal to be able to share data back and forth yeah. that alleviates the concerns of, you know, US surveillance on Europeans data stored in the US, but that hasn't happened yet. Meta is kind of, and other tech companies are kind of relying on the both sides to be able to figure something out. So they would be in compliance here. I think it's so funny how closely this mirrors the exact conversation going around with TikTok and that fact that the US doesn't want US data stored on Chinese data servers. So yeah. this is like very similar parallels. Um, and so I think it's just interesting to see it play out. It seems like there is like a deglobalization going on in terms of data flows. Yeah. So it was like, the wild west you're looking at like you're look you look at like physical products too. Everyone, you, people during the pandemic were talking about like oh we need to make we need to make our own goods on our own shores, and you're kind of seeing the same thing with bits and bytes and data as well. Saying like okay we're collecting data on yeah. Americans, we need to store it on American soil for sure. Um, and then we have some more meta news real quickly. Mark Zuckerberg is copying someone's homework again. The man who directly cloned Snapchat stories and TikTok has now set his sights on Twitter. So now, so Twitter or Meta is making a Twitter clone where users will be able to use their Instagram logins and port over all their followers to this standalone text-based app. It will allow you to post stuff that looks exactly like tweets. It gives you 500 characters to post these like text-based ideas. I think this is a great idea yeah. for Meta, especially because it integrates with your existing profile. Right. That's the biggest deal. I mean, if you go to these Twitter competitors like Blue Sky or Mastodon, you have to build up your entire audience from scratch, which is yeah. for, for us with huge, huge, huge audiences. audiences. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But if you already come with your, you know, if you're an influencer creator uh, with a huge Instagram following and you can just port that over to another yeah. product, that seems like way more tantalizing and attractive than starting over from scratch. So this is what he does. He he jumps on the bandwagon and just absolutely dominates it, it, a new thing. So and Reels is doing really well for them. Right. That's their TikTok clone. I would say it's not a, he doesn't have a 100% hit rate. He tried a Substack clone called Bulletin that they shuttered after a couple months yeah. and this live audio one that they tried to copy Clubhouse. Hey, you got to throw some darts out there. He's right? throwing a lot of darts. Yeah. This one, we'll see. They said it could come in June. Yeah, it's, it's coming. So I'm excited for it. 
All right, let's move on to esports, which is not living up to the hype at all. This weekend, the New York Times wrote a story about how the industry is sagging. Organizations are selling teams and skeptical investors are pulling their money as the esports boom wears off. Everyone is doing some soul searching to figure out what is just going on here. Uh, here's some evidence of, of the bust right now. Viewership of the 2023 spring season of the biggest U.S. E of the biggest U.S. esports league was down 13% from a year earlier and down 32% from 2021. The Madison Square Garden Company, which, yes, is Madison Square Garden, James Dolan, uh, which paid more than $10 million to buy a majority stake in an esports team in 2016, is selling the team. And then the stock price for FaZe Clan, which we talked about a month ago, it was our dog of the week one <laughs> Friday, is going to be delisted by the NASDAQ. And the company said last week it was laying off another 40% of employees after a first round of cuts in February. So the esports industry is, at least in the U.S., is not looking great at all. It, it kind of makes me a little sad because I watched esports, especially back in this wasn't even a pandemic thing, which is was tempting to say like, oh, everyone was watching it while you were stuck at home. But I remember when like Drake was playing live with Ninja in front of four hundred thousand people watching. I remember when Booga was a sixteen-year-old who won three million dollars in the Fortnite World this Cup. This is not English. Right? I know these are memories I have because esports did go through that boom time and everyone was just so excited about it. But I just truly think it has this uphill battle in terms of entertainment value because in order for games to be fun for the casual player to play, the game developers need to release updates they, they need to change like the meta what the most powerful strategies are in order to keep the casual gamer involved but professionals hate that because mm. it's it would be like the nba removing a three-point line one season and steph curry would just be like what the heck you just destroyed my entire career this happens in esports all the time with these with these game updates so i just think the entire concept of a competitive gaming league just doesn't work because the games change so much so that's my take on is why that, esports they have to appease the amateur gamer and the exactly and the professional gamer and that doesn't work in it, the professional gaming sense yeah it's really difficult to to please both at the same time because it is truly a different game like me playing fortnite is not the same as someone with a mouse and keyboard playing fortnite right. building a million miles a minute so yeah i i just think that there's it, it, on the surface, it seemed like this was the next frontier, but I think there's some fundamental issues with I think, esports. Yeah, I wouldn't write it off though. Yeah, I mean, there's these every every industry has, and technology has a boom and bust cycle. Right. There was a boom. There's a bust now, but maybe it's an opportunity for these companies and the industry to figure out what are sustainable business models and what new avenues to pursue. You know, as they're cutting staff and yeah. getting streamlined. So I like definitely would not write off esports. I know, and I mean, video games like the Zelda yeah. game just came out said. 10 minute 10 million units in the first in the first three days so obviously video games are still popular so you're right we won't write it off yet all right before we jump into the next story we're going to take a quick break neil our favorite mediterranean fast casual restaurant is preparing to ipo that's right kava is preparing to go public and release some public financials in preparation for its initial public offering Two numbers stood out to me, Neil. First, Kava's revenue increased 13% last year, which makes sense because it's absolutely delicious and I freaking love it. And two, it's still not profitable. It lost $37 million in 2021 and $59 million in 2022, but it does look like it's on the road to profitability. But Neil, bullish or bearish on Kava IPOing? I am bullish because people love Mediterranean food. I... 
they As love Mediterranean food. Visited, yes, you're right. You look at, you know, who's the longest living people on the planet, <laughs> yeah. and it's just, you know, gre- these, like, random islands in Greece, and they smoke cigarettes all day, but yeah. they just eat Mediterranean food. Not that kava is, you know, extremely authentic Mediterranean, but I hear so many, like, white people be like, I love hummus. Yeah. I love hummus. It's and I'm true. like, all right, kava, bullish. Um, no, it, I, another reason I'm bullish is because I'm bullish on the suburbs. Yeah. As I've written about in the brew and I've talked about here, Sweetgreen increased its presence in the suburbs over the pandemic from a third of its entire real estate footprint to 50%. Meanwhile, I just read this morning, Kava has 80% of its uh, real estate portfolio in the suburbs where people are increasingly living and working. So Kava for, you know, it's a great lunch option. So yeah. you're bullish on the burbs. Which I'm are bullish totally on, bullish on the burbs. On I'm bullish on Mediterranean. But uh, it's, it'll be exciting just to have an IPO. I, I don't I remember know, the last time I there know. was like an exciting IPO. I remember when I was writing for the brew, like there was one every other week. I was like, oh, this is so fun. Those but, didn't work out. I know. It's been the <laughs> dog days why. ever since. Um, and then I'm also bullish on this because right now, Kava only has 263 locations. Chipotle, which is like the gold standard yeah. of the fast casual, three thousand over 3,000 locations. So clearly there's a ton of expansion opportunity ahead of Kava. And I also am, am bullish too because uh, Kava's really good at digital too. 35% of their orders came from digital. So they are expanding a lot of these other like fast food restaurants have had to layer on the digital portion. Mm-hmm. It seems like Kava like already has that kind of figured out. So that's those are two reasons why I think Kava is going to do really well. And yeah, hopefully, again, I'm biased because I, I eat it two to three times a week. So it's very delicious. You're so. trying to get someone in Kava's I know, right please, now. That is, someone. It is very clear. Give me a Kava card. This fast casual space is really kind of boom or bust because the two ends of the spectrum, you have Chipotle, which we talked about, is the golden child. It's up 53% year to date. It's worth nearly $60 billion. Crazy. It is a giant. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, the Kava is always compared to Sweetgreen. Mm-hmm. That has declined, you know, 82 down, 82% from its IPO. That's probably its comp when you're looking at right. w- looking at an actual public offering. You're like, okay, how did Sweetgreen do? Sweetgreen's down a lot, and it's it's worth less than $1 billion right now. Yeah. So we'll see if it's, you know. It's sweet, summer, hopefully the, it's the summer. The Sweetgreen hype has weared off a little bit, too. So we'll see if Kava can keep. Yeah. You, you know, Kava definitely has, like, a very loyal following. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, uh, let's move to uh, our winners of the weekend. I will go first. Mine is the real estate broker, Kurt Rappaport. (laughs) And I can't imagine how much he partied this weekend, Mr. Rappaport, because he brokered the sale of a $200 million house in Malibu to Jay-Z and Beyonce. That's the largest ever purchase of a home in California and the second most expensive home sale in the country ever after Ken Griffin's $238 million apartment here in New York City. I looked and the broker fee in California is 4.92%. So uh, Kurt made basically a million bucks on this purchase and probably a lot more because he represented both sides. Ooh, Have I you w- seen this house? It. I am not a fan of it. It looks very, I mean, you wrote in the brew today, it looks very super villainy because yeah. it's, it's very minimalist, very isolated. Concrete. Yeah, very concrete vibes. But I mean, it's got a pool. It's got a great view. Like it's going to, they're going to be fine. It's so a good house. Apparently this area is called Paradise Cove in Malibu and it's home to a lot of billionaires. It's called Billionaire's Row. 
their neighbor, Jay-Z and Beyonce's neighbor, is Mark Andreessen, who paid $177 million for a house. There's the co-founder of WhatsApp. And so that's the billionaire's row in Malibu. And then we also have a billionaire's row here in New York City on 57th Street, mm-hmm. which with, with those three huge skinny skyscrapers. Yeah. So let's say this podcast does really well. Yeah. And you can afford a home on either billionaire's row in New York City or in Malibu. Which one are you going? I mean, come on. In one, I get a ton of acreage. I get a great view. I'm definitely going to, to Malibu. Although it is kind of cool to be like in the clouds way up there. Like, I mean, it was just cloudy this weekend and like the entire upper half of the building. I don't know. You're, you're, you're literally looking down on people. So I could see both ways. So come on, people. Listen, let's, let's get Neil and I a, a little apartment up there. Um, okay, my winner of the weekend is Michael Block. So, Neil, we both watched the PGA Championship this weekend. And while Brooks Kepka, a member of the Saudi-funded Live Tour, winning his fifth major was a pretty big storyline, he was kind of completely overshadowed by this 46-year-old dad named Michael Block. So Michael Block is a club pro, which even though it has pro in the name, is not as glamorous a life as Roy McIlroy and Justin Thomas, who are teeing it up for big money every week. Club pros are also known as teaching professionals, which means they pass exams in order to be certified to teach like Mr. and Mrs. Johnson and 60-year-olds at the end of the range for 150 bucks an hour. Well, since this is the championship put on by the PGA, PGA teaching pros like Michael Block get a chance to play with the big boys, and boy, did he play well. He finished 15th place overall, beating the number one golfer in the world, John Rahm, by six strokes and netting himself $288,000 in the process. That amount of money would have taken him 1,920 lessons at $150 an hour to make. Oh, and he made a hole-in-one yes. on Sunday. So he have yourself it. a weekend, Mr. Block. It was very fun to watch, and he seemed like uh, just a genuine— I think that is was the more, more of the story, too. He played really well, but he just seemed like a regular dude. And every single interview where they were like, how are you feeling? Like, are you play- you're playing with Rory McIlroy tomorrow? And he just started—and cr- he's like, you're going to make me cry. You're yeah. going to make me cry. I'm that like, was the soundbite of the weekend is you're going to make me cry because yeah I mean the dude was overwhelmed with just one how well he was playing and two just the support he was getting so just an awesome feel good story yeah. that makes all of us normal people feel like hey maybe maybe we have a shot it's never too late for us Neil um, okay Neil I mentioned this story at the top of the show and I'm really excited to talk about it killer whales are attacking boats off the coast of Spain. So earlier this month, a group of three orcas began to ram a yacht, eventually damaging its rudder and causing it to sink. And that wasn't the first time this happened. In total, three boats have been sunk by orcas off the Iberian coast since 2020, which is just absolutely terrifying, if you ask me. Neil, are orcas rising up against humanity? What's going on here? So the leading theory, which is really fascinating, this is published in a paper last year, is that this there's this female orca named White Gladys suffered this traumatic incident with a boat. They call it a critical moment of agony. It could have been uh, she was trapped in an f- illegal fishing net or some bad incident with a boat that just like got incepted into her brain and then she just turned against uh boats completely and it would have been you know it, it wasn't isolated to her that's the crazy part she taught other adults in their pod to hate boats and then kids do what kids do uh and imitated them so now there's just a bunch of orcas uh you know off the spanish coast that just you know go after boats i would say some of the scientists that were interviewed in a couple of the articles published about this said that this might have been might be a playful thing like it's and and the vast majority of incidents are not 
harmful at all. They're just kind of, you know, little tug here and there on the yeah. rudder. But <laughs> I, I am not on the scientist side that this is playful at all because orcas are just so smart. Like we know that they're one of the smartest right. species outside of humans. And I think this is tough look for Spain and like the Iberian coast. Like, Hey, bring your yacht to Spain where yeah. it may or may not be attacked <laughs> and sunk by like vengeful killer whales. So I could see it like impacting tourism a little bit because I mean, dang, did this headline kind of like go viral oh, yeah. over the weekend where everyone's like, well, pack it up, humanity. Like, we're done here. Wait till they learn to walk. I know. Orcas are are, are too smart for us. So uh, they Final fun fact about killer whales, orcas, uh, they live all over the place. They are the most widely distributed mammals, one of the wi most widely distributed mammals across the world other than humans and can you guess the other one? I was The first thing that came to mind was bats for some reason. It rhymes with bats. Cats. Rats. Rats. <laughs> Dang it. Rats, Rats, orcas, and humans. We can live anywhere. The triumvirate right there. All right, let's get into the week ahead preview. We'll do this real quick. Um, what you can, you know, pay attention to the week ahead. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida and Disney arch nemesis, is expected to announce his run for president this week. He's going to take on president or former president Trump. And that is going to be quite a sight to watch. A lot of content. Uh, also in politics. Yes. Also in politics, Turkey's runoff presidential election will take place on Sunday. That is the most consequential election there in a generation for sure. Uh, tomorrow, the streaming service HBO Max will just be renamed Max. Mad Max. I'm excited. It's going to get a lot of other discovery content due to the merger of those companies. So you have HGTV and Food Network up against Succession. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch. I'm sure people will complain, but I think we talked about this a month ago. I don't think it's going to change anything. In movies, we have Disney's live-action adaptation of The Little Mermaid that's going to be released on Friday. Um, and then Fast X just came out this past weekend. Uh, it did really well. It was the second biggest opening after Super Mario Brothers. Vin Diesel must have not been wearing sleeves in it. That's then. right. And then in sports, we have NBA and NHL playoffs, the NBA conference series. Not yeah. interesting. Both, yeah. both are 3-0. Um, and then on Sunday, we have the Indianapolis 500 and the French Open will tee off, not tee off, <laughs> will start without Rafael Nadal, who's won 121 <laughs> out of the 125 matches he's played there, which is kind of just We're gonna miss him. We're insane gonna miss to him. think about. And obviously, it's Memorial Day weekend. It's a three-day weekend, uh, and we will have a special show for you on Monday. Yeah. So hope you all have a, I was going to say hope you all have a great weekend, but we still have like five <laughs> days left. Yeah. But we have one to look forward to. Uh, that is our show. Uh, Toby and I, we didn't really mention it, but we are wearing the same sweatshirt the <laughs> first time. YouTube comments are going to roast us for that, but we're twinning. We're ready. Uh, you can always email us with questions and comments at morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Please reach out. Um, I have to give a huge shout out to our entire crew who makes this possible. Bryce Beloff is our producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are the associate producers. Yuchenna Waogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup quit after they found out we were moving to 6 a.m. recordings, it. which is understandable. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. <laughs>